0: what is going on folks this is episode 45 of the next bite podcast and i hope you're ready i hope you are buckled and because this one was a long one but don't worry the conversation was great which is why it became such a long episode we talked about everything space stick related we talked about the history of rocket propulsion and then we jumped into these two emerging technologies that really just sound impossible but they're led by amazing teams so exciting ventures um We hope you guys like it. If you're a space nerd like us, you're definitely going to like it. So, fingers crossed, and uh, let's get into it. I'm Daniel. And I'm Forbode. And this is the Next Byte Podcast. Every
1: week, we explore interesting and impactful tech and engineering content from Weevolver.com and deliver it to you in bite-sized episodes that are easy to understand, regardless of your background.
0: Okay, so this episode is all about the future of space travel, and if you want a little bit of background on how we got there and how it relates to computing, then you should check out this Mauser article. Mauser is the sponsor for this episode. Uh, Paul, our friend, wrote this incredible article about how space technology has changed and how much it's contributed to our daily lives.
1: I'll be honest, man. I used this article to research for this episode. Oh, yeah? Paul, shout out to you for writing an awesome article, but also to everyone else, check this out because it'll... you know. It's pretty short, but it'll catch you up basically on the history
0: of space travel to date and all the computers that went along with it. Yeah, th- there's like a couple notable stuff, and I'm just going to throw it out there. I, I don't want to spoil too much, but uh, Apollo 11, which was the landing on the moon, the guidance system that's what they talk about. Uh, we got the Voyager 1 and 2, the uh, exploration of Jupiter and Saturn, their communication systems, GPS. GPS, like if-, if you're using Waze or Google Maps or anything, that's thanks to GPS. And then uh, the future space travel. That's that's a Dart mission that is actually launching this week. I believe it's going to an asteroid. So
1: yeah. So Paul did a great job of summarizing all that and all those computers and stuff. But one one tidbit I thought was pretty interesting is the Apollo Eleven guidance system, the one that you know navigated this manned mission from Earth to the Moon. The computer that was used for that was state of the art. It was developed by MIT, and nice. it was three thousand times slower than the smartphones that are in our pockets. So if that, I don't know if that inspires confidence in space travel now or should brew some questions about how reliable it was in the past, but its let's just say it's really, really impressive. All those space achievements that we have to date. And it makes me even more more excited for what we can do in the future, knowing how, how much better our computing has become.
0: You know, it's funny. Every time I hear like a stat like that, the first thing that comes to my mind is how spoiled I am. Because even with the smartphone today, I'm like, man, this is so slow. Like, why isn't it just happening instantly? Yeah. Or y- you have a PS4, right? Yes. <laughs> <both>? And it's <laughs> that, that
1: PS4 has more computing powder, More computing power than military
0: supercomputers and like what was on the space shuttle missions and and that that's bizarre to think because the only thing i do when i'm playing it is complain about how slow it is but like (laughs) that that's the reality technology has been advancing exponentially and we are incredibly spoiled but uh with that said let's uh launch into it without rocket propulsion and that is a pun that'll make sense in just a few seconds so article one we're going to be talking about spin launch and uh, I don't know if you can tell by my energy right now, but I am super excited, like very hyped up. And I definitely expect myself to kind of go on tangents. So you're going to have to bring me back to Earth. I'm going to count on you for that. Okay. Uh, but as I was researching for this topic, it's, it's about, you know, rocket propulsion, actually just launching stuff into space. I got a little deep into it and I came across the history and I just I, I don't want to spend too much time on it. But I feel like it would be a huge miss if we don't at least give an overview. Yeah. so let's go for it. Let's go for it. 1957, right? Cold War is real nice. And just like the tensions are high. The Soviet Union, the United States of America, these two huge superpowers on the world stage. They want to show each other who's the best. How do you do this? You can flex your technological muscles and start doing cool things in space. What cool things you may ask? Really anything. Any milestone that no one has done. If you do it, you're showing the other one that you're better than them yeah right so what happens in 1957 well the soviet Re- Union launches the first object into space using a rocket and that was the sputnik satellite the first satellite ever and you know if you were uh, did you ever see october sky the movie about yes, yes. Yeah. I love that movie if you if anyone is like a space nerd and hasn't seen it please make it like one of your to-do list items and go watch it so sputnik was the first satellite you you see like the people in in the us were like coming out and seeing this thing like orbit their planet it's like incredibly cool now what was interesting about it is how how they accomplish this right rocket propulsion and that made sense because at the time they were developing icbms intercontinental ballistic missiles um, whose purpose wasn't to bring anything to space it was to deliver warheads to your targets but they were like, look, what if we just retrofit this thing and put the thing we want to take into space and just kind of launch it out?
1: Yeah, it, it made a, a a great reason to borrow some military technology to flex their muscles. I
0: mean, that that's what the Cold
1: War was all about, right? Yep. You're not actually fighting war. You're finding other battlefields and ways to compete like the Olympics and the space race and using your technology and your,
0: you know, all the superpower of your nation to try and prove that you're the best. Exactly. And that was a common theme, by the way, taking military technology for like space applications. So for, for this, they used the R-7 platform. That was the ICBM platform. Then in April of 1961, the Soviet Union puts the first man into orbit. That was Yuri Gagarin. And I hope I'm not like butchering his name. Um, They did this with the Vostok K platform. And I'm going to emphasize that because I don't know if you can see the watch I'm wearing. This is the Vostok watch. So it's the official (laughs) Soviet (laughs) Union at the time, Russian military watch. I'm a huge watch. So I I I wore it just for this episode. Um, This platform is special because it was developed for space missions. So, you know, R7, that was military for space. Vostok, that was just for space launches. Okay. Uh, I have a tidbit of trivia that I think it would be sad to leave out here. Um, With this mission, Yuri wasn't actually the first person that was supposed to go into orbit. It was his buddy, and that was uh, Vladimir Komakov. They were two really great friends, and, you know, these cosmonauts were actually, they had STEM backgrounds, and they were aware of the technological complications with these missions. Vladimir noticed that the mission they were going to send him on, the spacecraft was not built so well, and he knew he was going to die. But he also knew that if he backed out, Yuri, his best friend, would go and he would die instead. So he went telling everyone else that I know I'm going to die. And when I do die, you guys need to have an open casket for my funeral so you all see what you did to me. And unfortunately, that's what happened. And there's like a transmission of him coming down back to Earth. And he's just like upset and yelling and crying about what's happening. So, you know, we're talking about space race and all these great things, but there was a lot of great costs as well. And that that was a tidbit of history that I thought was really interesting and yeah. I didn't know about before this. No, me neither. Yeah. Um. So, you know, the Soviets are ahead. Tensions are as high as they could possibly be. 1961, May of 1961. So straight up like a month later, JFK goes to Congress and is like, look, tensions are high. They're beating us with everything. Here's the plan. We're going to go to the moon before the decade's over, which is like incredibly ambitious because we're like... The space technology age, the space race was new. The space age yeah. was new. So, uh, um, I mean, human, humankind
1: had just sent their first human into space. And now you're the saying- The U.S. hadn't yet done it. Well, th- actually, three weeks before the speech, the U.S. had just done it themselves. So, okay. Like, so, they, they just got into space. Yeah. And now we're saying we're going to go land on a, like, you know, a satellite planet, basically, of the Earth. Go land on the moon with humans.
0: That's crazy. That that's bizarre. Like, I, as a you know engineer, now when I'm thinking about this, I imagine someone making that proposal, and the first thing in my mind would be that's impossible. Like that's just crazy, but beating all the odds, we achieved that in 1969, July of 1969, Apollo 11 was launched on the Saturn V, and the Saturn V rocket was developed under the direction of Wernher von Braun, who, if you don't know, was an ex-Nazi scientist that developed a lot of the missile technology, and he was so smart, and he was so well well versed in rocketry that nasa brought him on to develop the platforms for the united states so the saturn V is i believe to this day the the most powerful rocket in terms of the amount of payload it can take into earth um the entire program costs 50 billion dollars and every launch costs 1.23 billion dollars in 2021 money oh my god yeah so very expensive i think nasa's budget per year now is 50 billion dollars so this this wasn't like a you know cheap thing a little project no this was a big deal yeah so it wasn't a surprise that in 1972 they retired the Saturn V and we eventually had the space shuttle um, which was a lot cheaper and you know a bunch of other stuff happened so I I just gave you the brief history um, I think it's a good preface for what we want to talk about which is the new age the new space race and how much how far we've really come. Um, I, I saw this data point that I wanted to talk about. And it's the price per kilogram to low Earth orbit since 1981. We went from $85,000 with the space shuttle down to $26,000 again with the space shuttle. Then SpaceX kind of did this drastic thing with the uh, Falcon 1, which was about under $10,000 per kilogram. And here we are in 2020 where we're under $1,000 per kilogram with the SpaceX Falcon Heavy.
1: I mean, still we're talking about thousands and thousands of pounds in each payload so it's it's millions of dollars per launch but significantly less expensive now than it was even what 20 30 years ago and the stuff we're talking about today is a way to even crack lower than that and find a better way to do it, right?
0: Exactly. So let's get into spin launch, and it's another one of these—I uh, I would say—ambitious and bizarre things that make me excited. And you know, like you said, it's cheap now. It's cheaper now, but it's still not cheap to put stuff no. into space. So that's one of the things they wanted to tackle. How can we do this in a more affordable manner? How can we put stuff into low Earth orbit? That's that's their main goal. But there's also the aspect of um, sustainability, you know, combusting stuff, uh, combusting rocket fuel, although right now it doesn't account for a lot of the global emissions, um, there's concerns about uh, combusting, you know, near the atmosphere and how that uh, depletes the ozone layer. And as more rocket launches become prevalent, as more missions start happening, people are kind of concerned. So they wanted to address that. Yeah, I mean, that.
1: That, that's what this is all about, right? Trying to make space travel and space exploration more ubiquitous. So that means if we're launching more and more rockets, that's more and more combustion in the atmosphere. So let's find
0: some alternatives, maybe, uh, to find a better way to do it. You're exactly right. And the last thing they wanted to touch was speed. So setting up a rocket launch it isn't like a quick thing. You got to plan it way in advance. There's a lot of moving parts. And to launch a satellite constellation now it might take months, but Spin Launch believes they- their system can do it in days.
1: And a satellite constellation, you just mean like. Something like SpaceX's uh, Starlink internet, like a exactly. bunch of satellites spread out across the
0: Earth in low Earth orbit. Exactly, you got it. Okay, so that, that's what they want them to do. And now here's the secret sauce, as we like to call it. How is this happening, right? Yeah. Um, they're they're building a vacuum sealed centrifuge. So centrifuge is something that spins really quickly. Mm-hmm. Vacuum sealed, you've sucked out all the air. Um, and their idea is that they can put a projectile with the payload of whatever you want inside of it into the centrifuge and spin it up to about 5,000 miles per hour over the course of one hour. And by the way, 5,000 miles per hour, that's like Mach 6.5. Okay. So very, very fast, yeah. over six times the speed of sound. Yeah. And once it reaches that speed, they want this thing to exit at a perfect tangent from this vacuum sealed chamber to go out either... Directly to low Earth orbit or very close to it, and once the projectile opens, there's a small engine which can you know change direction or like guide it to that last bit, the last portion of its. Uh, so,
1: so in my mind, I'm imagining like a giant robotic uh, discus thrower. Like, have you ever watched discus in the Olympics? The the person you know, that spins big, strong people they spin around, spin around, and they got this disc in their hand and they launch it tangentially to their path, and it goes up into the sky. So they made a giant robotic version of that that does it in a vacuum, I'm assuming. So yes. there's less friction from the air. I mean, this
0: sounds a little insane, <laughs> and but also cool. I'm with you. It sounds a little insane, right? But again, I love the insane stuff because that's what uh, causes cool things to happen. And what was interesting to me is that it's not even like a new idea. Apparently back in the 60s, NASA was thinking about projects like this. Like how can we make... You know, space launch is more affordable, easier. You know,
1: without combustion. Well, I imagine if you're spending billions and billions of dollars on rockets,
0: maybe you take some time to think about other ways to do it. That's a valid point. Yes, um, but yeah. So Spin Launch the derived uh, inspiration from that. They they set up this system, and they actually recently, uh, back in October, end of October. They had a test launch they created this facility and uh, it was capable of outputting 20 percent of their full operational capacity where they're spinning the system up with the electric motors and they launched it they put out this video um and yeah it it was cool to see the the, this like demo but as you know as as i love being optimistic i still have some doubts and turns out a lot of other i'm sure
1: the engineer brain in you is looking at that and trying to figure out how it's working and whether it's going to be
0: reliable exactly um so the first thing that came into my mind was was the one hour spin-up right so the heat that this thing has to withstand and the g-forces of the payload and everything uh, that that sounds pretty extreme like if it was for like a, a short period of time maybe you'd be like oh that's not that bad but for one hour dude that that that, that seemed like too much what uh, after some digging, it, it looked like Spin Launch actually has a lab dedicated to doing these tests with microelectronics and the different payloads they want to put on to determine their safety ranges. And okay. um, so it looks like they, they actually are aware of this and they're doing research into it. Um, that, w- that was refreshing to know. But well,
1: that, that's something I was going to mention, right? You mentioned going at Mach 6 mm-hmm. um, in a vacuum and then you pierce through this membrane into the air. I'm imagine it feels like you like run into a brick wall when all that friction hits. I don't know if humans could withstand that. Are these meant for unmanned missions? Only? Yes. No, this is just okay. per
0: footing satellites. Like no human, at least none that I know of yet. Okay.
1: So uh, You don't want to spin humans at Mach six for an
0: hour. Exactly. But you bring up a good point. Um, when, when this was the next thing I had, when it exits, it hits a membrane. Right. And if you look at the video, there's only like 10 seconds where we can see the projectile exiting. Uh, The tip comes out in a different location than the rear end, which means that it's kind of either like not coming out perfectly linear, like it's not launching where it's supposed to. So we said
1: it wants to launch tangential to the path. It might not be launching exactly tangential. Exactly. And I don't
0: know if it's the membrane or the way it's getting launched, but that's concerning to me. One, because the payload wouldn't make it, but if that was at 20% speed, so imagine going five times that and the projectile goes a little bit more east or west and it goes into the system i i feel like at that point you're starting to hit railgun speeds and you just built a railgun that shot back into the facility where i think people are operating these systems that just yeah. sounds like catastrophe um and, and then the vacuum time thing i mean the vacuum seal thing so every time you pop the membrane you flush the vacuum seal and you need to vacuum the chamber again That sounds pretty time intensive from what I can tell. And I believe this is the biggest uh, vacuum chamber ever made so far. I don't know if that matches their expectation of doing uh, entire satellite constellations within days versus months. It seems contradictory in my opinion.
1: It takes lots of launches over a series of days to launch an entire satellite constellation. And so you need an hour of spin up time. You also need to reseal the thing and pull a vacuum again. Um, it's, it's not like they're flipping a switch to open up the the portal for the payload to go out momentarily. They are instead filling the entire chamber with air, pulling out all the air, filling it with air, pulling out all the air. I can see how that is time intensive, if not also taking a lot of resources as well.
0: Right. So that, that was like the, the the few notes I took down about my concerns. But I, I am going to say this. You know, like their startup, they're relatively new. They do have a perfect concept and I'm, I'm always a fan of like how important it is to hit the ground running and then start figuring things out and to try to, you know, create this perfect concept that in theory might work. So yeah. as of right now, I'm, I'm going to stay optimistic. You know, I, I hope that as the team keeps working, they're able to share more information. That, that's one of the issues right now. There's not a lot of ton of information. It's just this video and their mission statements. So I, I feel like as time goes on, they might be able to refine and communicate better And this could be a feasible approach in the the coming decades, possibly. Um, Well, you see these startups doing ambitious things.
1: It's, you know, not all of these will succeed. I hope that Spin Launch succeeds because doing something so ambitious like that and you sent me the video. I looked at it on Twitter. It's crazy. It it looks crazy. It looks like it's something from the future or something from a sci-fi movie. So I'm really excited about what they're doing.
0: I agree, man. And, you know, I feel like that's what we want startups to do. Tackle the seemingly impossible and blow us away.
1: Yeah. And it seems like Spin Launch <laughs> is doing just that. Exactly. So I'm going to bridge us on to our second article, which is about Star Tram. And it's another version of launching things into space um, without having to rely on rocket propulsion. Nice. But the cool tidbit behind this is the, you know, the first drawings for this, the actual invention of it was... Done by James Powell, who is the inventor of the Maglev train. So No way! He made the Maglev train, licensed it, commercialized it, whatever, and saw this technology he was making. He's like, if we're using Maglev trains to make people travel super fast on trains, on land, is there a way we can use this technology to spin up payloads super fast and send them into space? And so he created a company with one of his best friends from the lab he was working at called StarTram, um, NASA ended up absorbing a lot of that research and writing more proposals with it in the t- early 2000s and 2010s, actually at President Obama's request to come up with some ideas other than rockets um, to send things to space. So that's the interesting backstory behind it. Um, but let's contextualize a little bit more of the problem. You, know, you mentioned it earlier, just how dang expensive it is and inefficient it is to send things into space. Um, so when they first developed this technology, The Startram. It cost about twenty six thousand dollars per kilogram to send a payload into space. Okay. Um, Even now, you know, we talked about how much better SpaceX has made it. It's twenty six times cheaper. So it costs only one kilogram or one thousand dollars per kilogram to get into space. But that's still really expensive. Um, And in addition to costing a ton of money, it's also really resource intensive. So I mean, imagine collecting all this. Rocket fuel, basically, oxygen, putting it in this thing and burning it. Mm-hmm. That seems to be incredibly wasteful resource-wise, and it's not super efficient. So we talk about maglev. If, if you don't know what that is, that's using uh, electromagnetic force to propel something and also levitate it off. So it, it basically looks like it's floating, and it's also propelled in the same way, and it uses electricity to do everything. It doesn't require any... Um, translations into a mechanical machine using a motor it doesn't require any chemical combustion and it does the best it can to reduce all friction so it's based in a technology that is focused on providing efficient propulsion
0: and maglev is the uh, foundation of you know the bullet train that's so famous uh, in, in asia it travels super fast and the hyperloop projects that have been spinning up everywhere right yeah and these actually
1: uh, both of them our Hyperloop project. So we would use a Hyperloop with a Maglev type, you know, not a train, but they call it a tram. Um, A Hyperloop with Maglev propulsion in there to spin up the payload super fast and then launch it into space.
0: So I I know for a spin launch, I talked about how there's like a membrane you got to break to, you know, break the seal of the vacuum and exit. How does that work for this system?
1: Okay, so this is the part where I tell you that this is... Even though it was developed in the early 90s, early 2000s, it's still probably a few more decades in the future. Um, the I'll, I'll talk about the Generation 1 and then the Generation 2. Give me the, the context. I'm loving one, all the context. They think is a little bit more attainable. But to answer your question about how do they hold that vacuum seal on that tunnel, they have a 81 or the design is an 81 mile long vacuum tunnel that's about Two, mi- two meters in diameter, so around six feet in diameter, and the entrance out into the atmosphere is sealed by a plasma window. Do you know what a plasma window is? No. So, you know, like the states of matter, solid, liquid, gas, and plasma, the fourth state of matter, which is like super energized matter, they use a thin wall of plasma to separate the atmosphere from the vacuum on the inside. And what that is able to do is you can... Turn that plasma wall on and off instantaneously, you know, like flipping a switch, so you could open the seal real quick for the payload to pass through and then shut it again so the entire 81-mile-long chamber doesn't fill with air.
0: I, I feel like that in itself sounds like next-gen tech. That's We incredible.
1: use plasma windows already for vacuum sealing, but mostly in microelectronics, so on the small gotcha. scale. There aren't two-meter-wide <laughs> plasma windows that exist to my knowledge today, but they're probably like the closest thing that we have to force fields in existence. That so this is so is cool. Already feeling like superstar. Like Star Wars, Trek. Yeah. Me. Yeah. Um, so they'd put this generation one uh, star tram at the top of a mountain peak, 6,000 meters above sea level. Um, that's about 20,000 feet. Um, and so that's getting almost, like about as high as they can. So it's super easy to exit out into the atmosphere and through the atmosphere into space. They would accelerate the unmanned payload. This generation one has to be unmanned, and I'll tell you why. Because they accelerate it up to Mach 25. Oh, my God. <laughs> so 25 times faster than the speed of sound. And it exits at about 10 degrees above horizontal. And leaving at Mach 25, their 13,000-pound payload, exiting at 10 degrees above horizontal and the aerodynamics that they've designed to do it, that's enough to enter low earth orbit without wow. any other type of propulsion. So it spins up on this maglev tunnel enters, uh, exits out through the plasma window. Um, and it's at Mach 25. Like I said, it has to be unmanned payload because of the immense forces. So we talk about typically the amount of force that's enacted on the payload in terms of G's or gravitational forces. This the forces enacted on that payload are 20 times stronger than gravity. So 20 G's, that's enough to kill any person that would ride in there that would like
0: i feel like halfway through that the skin would start separating from from your body like that's how insane those forces are
1: yeah i i, I don't want to know what it would do to my
0: body at 20g's but, but i i mean i feel like this brings the same set of questions i had about spin launches like can do we have payloads capable of handling this like it seems very extreme in terms of like the thermal stress that they they're going to be under uh whether it's the you know the tram itself or the payload
1: but well the the thing is is so you know we talk about one of the issues with spin launch was that you'll be you know subjected to this force for over an hour you know the spin up time plus going into space over an hour this Star Tram, the way that it tries to limit the damage to the payload is it does it really fast. And that's why you have to get up to Mach 25 is it It only travels at max speed for 30 seconds before it launches out. So it, it accelerates up to its max speed over a matter of minutes, and then it's only at its max speed for 30 seconds before it exits out. So even though it's subjected to a lot of force, it's only for a short period of time. And they're, they're fairly confident that satellites could, you know, specially designed satellites to withstand that force could survive it and still be functional by the time they get to space. That makes sense. The interesting part to me, though, so we, we talked about um, SpaceX now. They've gotten the price to about 40, or $950 per kilogram of payload to go into space. Um this StarTram, theoretically, only costs $44 per kilogram wow. to get things into space. So still, you know, a, an order of magnitude cheaper than SpaceX can. And because of this plasma window where they don't have to, you know, spend all this time to purge the vacuum chamber like you were talking about with spin launch, they're, they're able to launch over 10 times a day. So wow, it's okay. 22 times less expensive. And the interesting part for me is I looked at the ratio of how much uh, money is spent on rocket fuel for a SpaceX launch versus how much money would be spent in electricity for the electric propulsion on this launch and it also uses 5 times less energy so 22 times cheaper than SpaceX and 5 times less energy so a lot more equipment cost in the ratio but you know it, when we're talking about better alternatives for the environment this is this is another thing we should look at
0: for sure and i, I don't know if you knew this but NASA has actually set a goal that by 2040 they want to bring the cost Of putting stuff into low earth orbit into the tens of dollars so like we said like the the technology is probably going to happen tomorrow but in the next coming decades and seems to be pretty well aligned with what nasa wants so
1: so i mean and it you know this is something that i think they designed in first principles and we talk about how much we like first principles absolutely they just use the physics and the math and they plugged and chugged and figured out that they think this is possible the technology doesn't yet exist to let that manifest, um, we require some pretty significant developments in power generation and de- and delivery. Um, this requires about uh, 50 gigawatts of energy delivered for that 30-second period when it's at its max speed. Um, if you don't know what 50 gigawatts is, I'm going to give you a translation. That's about a million Corvettes at full throttle.
0: Is that so a unit a lot- of measurement Corvettes?
1: <laughs> a lot of energy. Um, the cost of tunneling, you know that's a big hurdle now, but we've, right. we've talked about it in the past. People like The Boring Company and Virgin, their Hyperloop projects are trying to bring down and the, those tunneling The costs. student
0: team, Swiss Loop, I've forgotten about yeah. them. Shout out.
1: Killing it. Um, and so we've only got... I mean, we're already way over our normal time for an episode. I think this just is a credit to how excited we were about this tech.
0: Yeah, but I... I I don't think I've enjoyed an episode this much in, in some time, so I'm really happy we did it. I love the tidbits of like history and context that that just makes it so much more alive for me. It's like I'm yeah. listening to like a bedtime story. That's a little geekier, but I love it.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it, it feels like sci-fi. Yeah, um, but hopefully, it's no longer science fiction, and soon it'll be science reality. Fingers but crossed. I want to take take a second just because I'm so excited about Star Tram. I t- I told you all about Generation One. I'll just take a second to plant a seed in your brain about you got generation a Hit two. Me with it they want to make an alternative version with this big tunnel that spins up and they said they would have to do it in antarctica and <laughs> i'll tell you why because in addition to having this hyperloop underground they would also build a large ramp that gets this thing almost up into space um it would operate at only two to three times gravitational force two or three g's so humans could withstand it and obviously the equipment and the development cost of that would be astronomical. But if you talk about just the marginal cost to launch one more human into space using the generation Two star tram, it could cost as little as $13,000 per person. That's like a first class ticket internationally. Wow. You could book a first class ticket, but instead of, you know, flying from New York to London, you'd be flying into space. And for some context, uh, Virgin space will send you into space for about $250,000 right. and you're only up there for a few seconds. Um, SpaceX will send you to the ISS for about $51 million. So this is, you know, if we talk about where science fiction meets reality at some point in the future where we're sending people into space all the time, it might be a star tram that is sending people there.
0: Well, it sounds like the best uh, ride at Disney or Universal you could get on in in the coming future. Like Space Mountain. Yeah, Space Mountain (laughs) 2.0. Yeah. Um, But, okay, so we're already way over time. This was an awesome episode. I hope our listeners enjoyed it as much as we did. But, uh, yeah, let's leave it off with that. Thank you guys for listening. Definitely share it with a friend. Friends recommend cool podcasts to each other, so be a good friend. And, uh, yeah, as always, we'll see you in the next episode.
1: (laughs) Friends don't let friends not listen to the next bite.
0: Oh, that's a better one. I like that. Yeah, we'll see you. Right. Bye, Peace. guys. That's all for today. The Next bite podcast is produced by Weevalver. And to learn more about the topics we discussed today, visit weevalver.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please review and subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or one of your favorite platforms. I'm Forbode. And I'm Daniel. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.